What's up, y'all? This is the Enlighten Me podcast, and I'm your host, Mackenzie. In today's episode, we are talking with Emily Blackledge from The Mocha Club. The Mocha Club, if you've never heard of it, has been working to equip and empower local leaders across the continent of Africa since 2005. Emily Blackledge is the president of the company, and today she's sharing with us not only how the Mocha Club works to serve the African people, but she goes into detail explaining what exactly the needs are across the 11 different countries that they serve and how we can be a part of helping. I think this conversation with Emily is extremely important because how many of you have ever heard a phrase like, well, there are starving children in Africa, you know? I've probably used that phrase dozens of times without really knowing what it means. It's a simple thing to say, but it's a much more complex problem than we even realize. Emily does a great job of explaining why and kind of the roots of the issues that are in some of these developing countries within Africa. Some of you might be thinking that this could be a depressing or sad conversation talking about a continent that has so many struggles, but is actually quite the opposite. The hope and pride that is so clear in the way Emily talks about the African people is contagious. You're going to walk away from this conversation feeling inspired and probably falling in love with what Mocha Club is doing. Emily explains how the asset-based development model that they use works and how they are multiplying leaders through the power of education, which is something everybody knows that I love talking about. Emily also explains the value of everyday generosity and is going to compel you to want to be more generous. Whether or not that's towards the Mocha Club or another cause that you're passionate about, she is going to encourage your heart to want to give. I seriously love talking with Emily. She is so intelligent and accomplished and has done so much for the Mocha Club and the countries in Africa that they're serving, but she's so down to earth and hilarious and has tons of great recommendations for us. So enjoy this conversation with my new friend, Emily Blackledge, and learn more about the Mocha Club. Okay. Hey, Emily, how are you? I'm good, Mackenzie. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I'm so excited to learn more about all that you do. Um, Can you just start with introducing yourself? Yeah, for sure. Um, So I'm Emily. I'm the president of Mocha Club, um, and I've been a part of our organization for the last eight years working across the continent of Africa. When I graduated, I kind of was like most other people. I I really set out to want to change the world, but wasn't sure how to do that. Um, what it would look like, where to go. And the one thing I did know um, was that I wanted to find a place where I could use my particular skill set and my background and knowledge um, and care about a continent that I had fallen in love with. So I took my first trip to Africa in 2006 with the Mocha Club and um, never looked back, joined staff in 2010 and been the president for the last few years. That's amazing. And can you tell us a little bit more about Mocha Club and what you guys do? Yeah. um, I think, you know, the thing that I love most about Mocha is kind of our cultural perspective of looking at um, the world and work that we do in Africa. Um, One of the things I fell in love with in Africa for the most part from the very beginning was just um, how smart they are, how resilient African men and women and children are, and how relational they are. And I saw those things as such assets, um, things that felt contradictory to the fast-paced world that I was living in here in the States, 
where we don't have a lot of time for people and where we can get really burdened by our our circumstances and really not able to move forward. So I just saw men and women who were smart and thought outside the box and figured out how to get life done. And, and what we do here at Mocha Club is try to build on those cultural norms that they have, on the assets that they have in just inbred into them by nature of being African. Um, we invest in their lives through education. Our plan is really helping them learn what they, um, they lack when they decide to attack a problem or um, work to better their community. So we uh, work with men and women who are passionate, um, creative innovators who already have a plan for tomorrow and really want to figure out um, how best to complete that plan effectively and efficiently. So yeah, our job is really to help them learn whatever skills or concepts they need to do their jobs better to build uh, their dreams and see their communities flourish. Yeah, that's great. And so you're primarily working with leaders in local communities. Is that right? Yep. So we work in 11 different countries and have a um, very highly educated and equipped teaching staff across those countries. And really their job is to work with students. They go out and look for this particular demographic of local leaders who are already doing things. And if that leader is looking for resources and education on community development or trauma healing or working within their church community, financial transparency and accountability, you know, business skills, then then they um, start mentoring those students and work with them for anywhere from two to three years, uh, really giving them the skills they need to do their job well. Yeah, that's amazing. And, and the 11 countries that you're in, are they predominantly ones that are pretty stricken by poverty or are they all different or what's that like? Yeah. Well, the continent is super different and super diverse. So um, yes, they're all in sub-Saharan Africa. None of them, with the exception of South Africa, uh, would you consider really like well off or um, progressing um, quickly? Yeah. Um, Kenya Kenya has pockets, obviously. Kenya has some massive pockets around Nairobi that are doing really well, but has a lot of rural poverty. Yeah, Sierra Leone. I mean, we're kind of, we're in war-torn countries like South Sudan and Sudan and Congo, um, Ethiopia, Malawi. Yeah, places that are super diverse but struggle with poverty and and just a lack of of material resources. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's great. And we're going to dive more into that and talking more about, you know, what what it's really like to be in Africa and live in Africa. But Um, Just a little bit more about Mocha Club. How did it get started? So Mocha Club um, started in 2005. Even the way we came about was super exciting and interesting. So we are a part of another organization called African Leadership. Um, And African Leadership is our education platform. It's what we do. It's how we teach. um, it's, It's what we are doing in Africa. Um, but what we realized was that the, the majority of donors who you could go to in the U.S. and talk about education with were older men and women, people our parents' age, really, that appreciated the value of education. But it was a lot harder to get college students invested in Mocha Club, um, even though part of our work means as we're training a leader in community development, if, if this leader comes to us and says, we have this problem of waterborne illnesses, and so we have this is our plan for how we want to attack it. 
it, it allows us to do tangible projects with community partners and allows us to build um, sustainable change and thriving communities. So um, there's tangible work that we get to do, not just education, but it comes out, it gets spread out of training them well, leading them well. So part of what Mocha Club does is it just provides a platform for younger audiences, um, 20 and 30 somethings to pool their resources um, and still invest in something bigger than themselves. So, you know, we have a much smaller ask, like a, an 18 and $29 ask in the Mocha Club world um, and really get to allow people to um, come together as a community, Mocha Club, and really uh, from a community initiative here in the States, invest in Africa. Oh, that's so neat. So, so a lot of your investors and financial partners are actually younger people that, you know, aren't super wealthy. Yeah, it's super great. I mean, I think one of the beautiful things that I love about Africa or that Africa has made me aware of that's probably very true to all humans is that, um, well, not probably, it is very true to all humans. We all have something to offer. Yeah. Um, we all have skills and assets and resources. And um, I think it's very easy in, that, in America to look at Africa and decide that they don't have and we need to do for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I said, when I spend time in Africa, what I'm most struck by is how smart and creative and innovative these men and women are at solving their own problems. They know what they have, and they know what they need, and they know the steps to get getting it done. So it just kind of empowered this place of saying, hey, we all have something we can offer. Um, and if we all were willing to leverage what we have, we could really make the world a better place. Yeah. So if Africa knows how to leverage who they are and what they have to offer, then what is it that a 20-something has? You know, What are the opportunities that a 20-something has or 30-something has to leverage who they are and what they have for making positive, lasting change in the world? Wow, that's really cool. I love it. And it, this kind of leads into some people, some people might have already picked up on what they can guess the name means, but... In case people are wondering, can you tell us how the name yeah. came to be? So, yeah, the idea was really that um, creating positive change, um, in particular in Africa, because that's where we work, doesn't mean you have to be um, a donor that can stroke a $20,000 check. We, as a community, can invest. Um, so the idea of Mocha was that um, the change can be smaller. It can be the cost of a glass of a cup of coffee a day, which is really our ask at $29 a month means that it's less than your average cup of coffee at McDonald's um, every day. And that that kind of sacrifice can add up, especially when we do it as a part of a club, as a part of a greater community. So Mocha Club is really the combination of that idea. Can you give up what you have and what you can afford? um, And in the context of doing that together, we can affect change. Yeah. And you said... The organization started in 2005, right? So Mocha Club as a platform did, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. And so how many staff do you guys now have? Gosh, um, we have six staff that work here in the States. And that staff is really committed to the branding, the marketing, communications. But really, most of our work is done in Africa by Africans. So I, uh, we don't have any Americans or Westerners working on behalf of Mocha Club on the continent. We've worked over the last 20 years to build a network of men and women um, and build up local country staff. So we have um, country staff in every one of those countries. We have local boards. 
for the purposes of them being able to invest. So local boards mean they can apply for funding too from churches or individuals and they can receive charitable donations. So we have staff in every country. I think there's a total of 20, I'd have to count 26, 28 of us um, across the continent and here in the States. Mm. That's awesome. That just shows that you guys really put your money where your mouth is with that, with creating leaders, you know, not just in the U.S., but everywhere. And that's even through how you're employing people. So that's really cool. Yeah, I mean, I think um, the longer I've been in this role, uh, the more I recognize that people can take very different perspectives when approaching nonprofit work. Yeah. Unfortunately, I've heard nonprofit leaders say things like, well, you know, the power is really wherever the money is. Yeah. And I, I think I was raised in a home where that wasn't true. Um, in my family, education and knowledge was power. And I just believe that in Africa. So one of the beautiful things about the way that we get to work is I truly believe that I am not the most well-positioned person to write a strategic plan for what we do in Congo in the midst of a war zone, Um, but that Congolese men and women who are there, who know the terrain and know the um, targeted audience and know what works and what doesn't work, they know best. Yeah how to write a plan that will be effective um, and efficient, but also super important and impactful. So um, we really lean into that here, that idea that, um, gosh, why would I write a plan for Malawi in Nashville, Tennessee? That seems outrageous. Yeah. When we have a lot of really gifted, really highly qualified Malawians that could do that. So yeah, just taking a different spin on it. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So uh, I I would love, um, before we talk more about kind of how you guys are working in Africa, to just give listeners some background, including myself, some background onto what Africa is really like. Um, I was telling you before we started recording that a lot of us know that there's a lot of, you know, issues, or I don't know how you would say it, but a lot of poverty in Africa and a lot of problems that result from it you know, we can all say, oh, there are starving kids in Africa or whatever, but we don't really know what it actually looks like. And so I was wondering, since you've been there several times, and since your work is primarily there, can you just give us a background look into what what it really looks like there? Yeah. Um, So Mackenzie, I love this question. and I hate this question, um, because my answer is super contradictory. Okay. I think the short answer is it looks a lot like here. And my my other answer is it looks nothing like this. Um, (laughs) So let me try to explain. At the end of the day, what I love about Africa, and the relationships that we have there, and the program that we have there is that Men and women, human beings, are human beings at their very core and their very nature. So I was there last month and I was making juice in a, in a kitchen with a mom talking about our kids. And um, you could have transported the conversation and the tears and the laughter and the frustration from her living room to mine and it would have seemed similar. You know, at, at the core... These are men and women who have dreams and have children and who struggle with how are we going to pay rent next month or do we, can we really afford to take that vacation? We just want a break. They're thinking about when to have kids or they're dreaming about grandkids and talking about retirement. Um, They care about 
wanting to leave the world a better place. And they also, they're also the people that go, oh, I just don't want to cook tonight. Can we go out? I mean, it's just, it's so normal. And I think, I think for me, at least that was something that felt, that was probably one of the biggest shocks that I incurred on my first trip to Africa. Cause I went, I, I don't know, 20, how old was I? 20. Oh gosh. I have no <laughs> idea. I was in my early, early twenties, mid twenties. And I take this trip thinking, you know, I'm going to find poverty. I'm going to find like super sad, super needy. Right. And I'm going to be able to really feed or come up with an answer for how can I change this world? And what I found was like, oh my gosh, these are real people. These are friends. These are people that cry. These are people that fight. Um, these are people that laugh and dream. Um, and, and, you know, I, even on this last trip, I looked at a, one of my uh, country staff and I were driving to a refugee camp near the border of South Sudan. And, and he looked at me and he said, Emily, did you know that newborn babies cry? And I was like, yes, Tito, did you not? I mean, you have four kids. How do you not know that you, four, you've had four kids? Where, how do you not know this? Um, and he went on to tell me like, okay, but don't forget, like I was moving around in a war zone. I wasn't actually living with my kids and my wife who were protected in a different country in the midst of this war. So like I had to reframe what I was thinking about, but the reality is like newborn babies cry yeah. and, and every dad goes, Oh, the baby's crying in the middle of the night. Yeah. You know, that's like the groan of that moment feels very normal. It feels very um, unifying. Like, oh, we really do share something innately human. And that means that you have value and experience and worth that is equal to mine. It's not, it's different from mine, but it's equal to mine. Yeah. And I think we can forget that when we, especially in this looking at a country from a, um, from a nonprofit perspective, like we're trying to help and make a difference. So in that way, I would say um, Africa to me feels very normal and very much like being at home here in Nashville. Does that, does that kind of make sense? Right. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. Yeah, totally. On the other end of that spectrum, there is the truth that Africa is uniquely and vibrantly different from the U.S. But again, with this nuance of, um, you know, I, I don't lack the the funding to be able to drive my car, first of all, to own a car and to drive my car to the gas station and fill it with gas. And I do have friends that do that. I have a 70 year old staff member who um, is leading our work in Congo and looked at me the last time I was there and said, are you trying to kill me? Like I need a car. I'm doing all of this movement on a, on the back of a motorcycle. I rent a taxi, which is nothing more than a motorbike, a dirt bike. And I get on it and I go three hours in a war zone to get some work done. Um, And he goes, man, I think sometimes you're trying to kill me. You know, and we had this laugh about it. But I can appreciate that we in the States have access to material resources in a way that can insulate our life to making us think like we're really protected and we have a lot. Um, And we do in lots of ways. But I would also say that I see a, a... Sadness. I see a loneliness. I see a fear in individuals here as much as I can see it in Africa. The circumstances for why might be different. So for instance, in Congo, you might be afraid to open your front door because you live really near the last rebel attack. 
that's a certain kind of fear that we don't necessarily face here in the United States. But I have lots of friends who were not born here in the United States and are really struggling with if they belong in inside the U.S. in this newer world where we seem to be wanting to push out um, people that look or feel different from us. In the same way, I, we do a lot of child trauma healing work, um, giving children who've experienced something horrific, art therapy, play therapy, narrative language for what they experienced and how that made them feel in an effort to really unlock their hearts to a place of healing and, and forward movement in their life story. But I spend time here in inner city Nashville at a school and would say, I see that kind of fear and trauma here in Nashville. So um, it is unique. Uh, You know, there aren't as many cars and it is a luxury to fly in an airplane and eat out and um, do luxury things like go to a baseball game or go to a, a concert at night. But But the heartbeat of men and women is really still very similar. Our fear, our insecurities, what we have to hope for and celebrate, those things are uniting for sure. Yeah. No, I think that's really humanizing and it does put it in perspective, especially for those of us who've never been there because I think I would be the same way in that I would expect – to see a certain thing going and probably be blown away by how similar I am to some of the people I meet. So that's really cool. I will say, um, I will say from a like purely circumstantial, like it couldn't be more different. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm moaning in the middle of the night because the monkeys are picking avocados out of the tree above my house. And (laughs) the only way they can open it is to crack it on the roof. So they're banging avocados on the roof. Oh like gosh. that doesn't happen in the U.S., you know, and you're not driving behind a bus filled with 40 people that in the middle of a torrential downpour um, has chickens on the roof and a rooster tied to the back. Like oh there are definitely yeah. some things that you go, oh, man, you don't see this in Nashville. Yeah. We're in the U.S. So, yeah, I mean, there are, there are circumstances. You walk into something that feels so unbelievably different from your world. Um, and so I think what's so captivating is when you begin to recognize that in the midst of this, of the circumstances being so different, these people are just like me. Yeah, that's really good perspective. And one thing I was thinking of too, when you were talking is just kind of the roots of the issue that we maybe don't probably a lot of people don't know about considering the history of Africa or, you know, the history of the different countries and what's still going on there. And so even when you say, oh, this is a war-torn area, people might be thinking, wait, there's a war going on there? Because especially for those of us living in the U.S., we're very focused on other issues right now and, you know, kind of ignorant in ways maybe to what has taken place in Africa and what's still taking place. So could you maybe just touch on that just to give us a little bit of background in that sense? Yeah. um, Man, Africa is so diverse that's like, you could do a history on every different country and, um, you know, it would take you 53 lessons. Um, but you know, yeah, Africa's history is really complex 
Um, so my graduate education is um, a joint degree. I got it at, at Boston University. I got part of it in, as an international conflict resolution degree, and then I got the other part of it in like African history and anthropology. And so um, I get to use a lot of what I learned all the time. And the class I was most excited for day one grad school is like the history of the African continent. I'm like, all right, I'm going to learn awesome things about um, different tribes and different cultures and how things came to be. Um, And the first six sessions, I'm not kidding, six classes, two and a half hours each were lectures on water and dirt. And I was like, oh, gosh, I'm in the wrong class. (laughs) But this professor ended up talking about how from the very beginning of there being civilization in Africa, things like water and rainfall and then the type of soil made very, very, very different um, societies emerge. So where you have very dry land, um, you created nomadic people groups that always took their goats and cattle and, and herds and, and migrated towards water. But in the places where you had very fertile soil and lots of rainfall, you had societies emerge that had um, agrarian, like we build here, we farm here, we live here. Um, and so from the very beginning, as those types of different societies butted up against each other, as the nomads traveled out of desert regions and towards water, but that water happened to be a river that was feeding um, a farming community, Um, you created culture and tension and strife and conflict. So a lot of the um, subtleties and differences in in people groups and tribes in Africa stem from literally just the way the places they were born and the type of water and soil that that was either falling on their heads or, or beneath their feet. So I found that really fascinating that that created the beginning of very, very different kind of um, views of the world or perspectives of what you have and what you need to survive. But then I think the other major component that kind of bred a lot of, for me, kind of helped me form a picture of Africa was um, the Cold War. So we understand the Cold War to be this battle and this fear I wasn't around for it. So I'm using history as a textbook. But um, we understand the Cold War to be a battle between the U.S. and the Soviet Union for dominance and control and power. Mm -hmm. And we understand that from the U.S. as like we know of the Bay of Pigs or the Cuban Missile Crisis. We remember where or have been taught about where that war or that that conflict, that Cold War – came really close to being a, a, a battle we had to actually wage with weapons, yeah. um, like, like in the Bay of Pigs or the Cuban Missile Crisis. What we don't hear about are all of the places where the U.S. and Russia or the Soviet Union were doing that battle in other parts of the world, um, and a majority of where they were doing that battle was across Africa. Mm-hmm. So because we were coming out of the Second World War, one of um, – a massive piece of history that a lot of people don't know is that part of that disbanding meant um, we were all going to, we all agreed to walk away from the colonies that we had to, to really allow people to govern themselves mm-hmm. because we saw that as a major problem um, leading it, leading us into two world wars. So we had the Britain woods kind of covenant and they broke apart all of these colonies. And so now there was this push 
for uh, Portugal, for um, France, for the United Kingdom to have to leave and exit all of these colonies. Well, that was all Africa. A majority of Africa was colonized by those three countries. So now we've all agreed following these wars, we're going to decolonize the places where we are ruling other people. But that's happening at the same time that now the U.S. and the Soviet Union are beginning to, to battle out over who's going to be the world superpower. Um, so what happened was as all of these countries are decolonizing in the 60s, the U.S. and the Russia are choosing sides. And they're funding different sides, different rebel groups, different power groups in these countries so that whoever ends up being the president or the political ruling party happens to either favor the U.S. in a democratic appeal and approach or favor the Soviet Union and a more communist culture and political structure. So, um, man, we just did a lot. We did a lot to, um, we poured a lot of money in. Um, we poured a lot of weapons and training into countries across the continent. We added a lot of strife and instability to what was already a volatile time. Mm -hmm. So it just really helped shape what most people define as like a really broken political and economic structure. Um, and that is like, that's probably not even a great Africa 101 history lesson. That's like, I broke that way too simply down. So there's a lot of nuances and complexities to every different country. But the reality is we have had instability since it's, since it's inception, yeah. since um, different peoples were ruling, um, whether nomadic or agrarian societies. But we definitely have done a lot in the 60s and 70s to add to that. Um, and so now you just have these, you have men and women who, or you have men in particular that have been in power since the 1970s and 80s when those wars were ending. And there was one person that came out on top and they're still ruling. I mean, they're still ruling these countries and they kick out all the white people or they, they decide to amass their own personal private uh, collections of wealth and, and just kind of devastate their economies and the people that um, they're, they've been elected to serve. So it's just kind of, um, yeah, there's a lot of countries that are still um, either in the midst of war. South Sudan is in the middle of its own civil war, two different sides trying to um, fight for control and leadership. Um, Congo has always been in a war for the last uh, two, 35, 40 years. Places that like, I mean, I think the longest war with the most deaths of any war in the history of our world is in Congo and it's mm. continuing to wage. So yeah, there's definitely just some complexities to it. Mm. Yeah. I feel like probably, I don't want to say that this is all Americans by any means, but I'll, I'm sure a lot of people listening didn't know most of what you just shared. And probably a lot of people also have gained knowledge through movies. Like I, I yeah. feel that way, even like, oh, yeah, I saw Blood Diamond and I saw Hotel Rwanda mm -hmm. and I saw, you know, or whatever. And it's like, oh, crap, I didn't know this was going on. And it's still yeah. going on, right? Genocide is still a problem there and rebel groups are still a problem there, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, not necessarily in Rwanda right now, but um, it's crossed the border and it's in Congo. And, 
you know, a lot of people became um, well aware of Northern Uganda with the, um, the invisible film, the invisible children documentaries. Mm, yeah. And, and, you know, Kony's no longer in Northern Uganda. And so Northern Uganda has this, um, is this becoming this very kind of beautiful example of what can happen when, when war is, and, and rebels are finally kicked out. But the reality is he's now causing chaos and, you know, the CAR and, and, and in Congo and so many other places. So um, you kind of can, you can kind of shove maybe one crisis outside your borders, um, but it doesn't necessarily mean the crisis is averted or over. Yeah. They just kind of yeah. move around. So, um, and then there's other places like Malawi that's this completely beautiful, peaceful place that isn't at war and hasn't been at war. I would have to go back and look, but I don't know if they've ever really been at war in their history but it's also like one of the poorest places in the world. They're not fighting over resources like oil or precious stones and jewels. So there isn't really a lot to contend for. It's unfortunate that the reality is places like that, that may not have land that's rich in, in resources become kind of the safer, more quiet place to be. But then they also are, are have higher rates of unemployment and poverty, you know? Yeah, that's true. And then, with that too, something I was convicted to learn about with just everything with the Syrian refugee crisis, that got so much attention in our media, obviously, and especially in the U.S. I know we were very worried how it would affect us over here, and there was controversy over whether we should allow refugees here. And I learned shortly after that that that's not just a Syrian refugee, there's refugee crises all over the world right now, and especially in Africa yeah. with all the war-torn areas, right? Yeah, South Sudan has um, about 800,000 refugees. Um, about a third of their population right now are refugees in other countries. Congo has a, a ton. In fact, the U.S. gets Congolese refugees. Um, it's one of the places that will accept Congolese refugees. So we get a lot of them. Uh, we have a lot of Nashville, actually. Yeah, Rwanda still has refugees. Malawi has um, a refugee camp for Zimbabwe. I mean, there's just refugees kind of take on this whole other dimension to a, a conversation where, um, you know, when you leave your home and you flee a border uh, to, to, get, to get to safety, I don't know that most people recognize what they're giving up. So the U.S. Um, is called an open, it's kind of known as an open refugee country, just like um, Uganda is another one, which means when we accept refugees, we welcome people into our country um, and they are free to roam, to work, to find housing, um, to put their kids in the school system, to get and seek medical attention. That is a, that is not typical. Um, what we're used to seeing is the refugee crisis in Syria where, you know, people are living on this plot of land and they've got tents and tarps and mm -hmm. they're kind of housed there. Like a camp. Kind like of a place. camp. And so refugee camps happen more often in, um, in closed countries, which says like, like Malawi, for example, is a closed refugee country, which means if you are a refugee and, and get status and get placed in Malawi, you actually get placed inside a a camp like that that has a border um, and it has a guard um, and the guard is there not to protect you but the guard is there to keep you in the camp mm -hmm. you don't get access to um, to the education system you don't get access to medical care you don't get access to um, employment or job opportunities so 
when I was in the refugee camp in Malawi several years ago, those are men and women who came from Zimbabwe like 30, 40, 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and what happened was they fled their war in Zimbabwe, arrived in Malawi, got placed inside this closed camp. And then, of course, if you don't have access to education and you don't have access to, um, to a job, you don't have any money. And so it's probably the case that you will never be able to afford to move back to your home country. Um, and so you are going to live a very subsistence life in this country that is not your home without access to ever having a life change, um, never being able to get a job, send your kids to school, um, progress outside of that. Um, you're completely dependent upon um, nonprofits or um, care that is that is sent, aid that is sent specifically on your behalf into this little tiny camp. So yeah, refugees just can, can add a whole different dimension to the work and um, to the way that you work in a country. Yeah, absolutely. And I just think it's crazy that some of the poorest countries in the world are also having to take care of these refugees. And yeah, I just thank you for sharing all of that. I just think it's you kind of just answered in a way the question of like, well, why Africa? Like people might wonder why why Africa for the Mocha Club? Why is Africa? Because there are problems in the U.S. and there are problems in Nashville, right? It's, yeah. you know, poverty is a worldwide thing, but it it reminds me of, I don't know if you remember this, but I remember when Oprah was on TV still and she donated a lot of money to start a school in a country in Africa. I don't remember where, but, and she got flack for it from some people because people said, well, there, there's a need for that here in the U.S. And she said, yeah, but it's just so different. It's a different game. Like you can almost can't even compare the two because the poorest of the poor in the U S don't even know what it's like to be poor in Africa. Like it's just totally different. Yeah. Um, it totally is. She has a school. I think her school is in South Africa, right? I, I think uh, anyway. I Google it. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, um, it, it is different in a way. Um, you know, I think for me, I can only speak for me and I can speak for the work that I am a part of here at Mocha Club. But part of it is it's where I have an expertise. It's where I have a love. It's where I am particularly gifted, but also convicted. This is where I can leverage who I am for other people. It also doesn't mean that I don't work here in Nashville. I mean, I I, I think part of this process, one of the things that's been really challenging for me as I've, as I've aged and I've kind of um, moved past a feeling of like, I want to go conquer and slash change the world. The reality is changing the world is done in relationship. It's not most effective on these massive platforms. It's not, it is not the case that, that oh, man, mm-hmm. I don't even know how to say this. The work that I'm doing and the, and the way that I am adding value in Africa or adding value in my local school system or adding value, frankly, in my home is by taking the time to look at the person across the table from me with dignity and value, whether he's my three-year-old son or whether he's my 7 year old counterpart in Africa. I mean, we, you have something to offer me and I have something to offer you. I want to learn from you. And I want to give you everything that I have. I want to leverage all of who I am for the good of you and your family and the people around you. And um, 
you can't do that everywhere, right? I can't say I'm going to do that all over the world and me, one person, affect that kind of change. I have to be intentional with my time and the relationships that I get into. But so that me, what that means for me is I have to choose wisely where, I'm, where I can do that. Um, I can do that with my son. I can do that in my home with my husband and my family. I can do that in my church, in my small groups. I can do that at the local school system that has the refugees from Rwanda and Congo. Um, and I can do that in Africa because I have a history and a background in Africa. And I have an economic development degree, particularly after war-torn countries have been created. So I have a skill set that I can leverage in South Sudan. Um that is different than the way I would leverage it here in the United States or I could do if I went to work in Canada. And I think, I think we forget that oftentimes that if we have something to add and we have value to add, then um, where's the place to add that? And not everybody's called to Africa. If we were all called to Africa, the rest of the world would suffer. That's why we're uniquely made and uniquely skilled. And um, if we all gave out of the goodness of who we are and what we've been given, we can affect positive change and it doesn't just have to happen in Africa. So I think sometimes I can get really frustrated that we, we, are, we aren't doing all that we can as individuals because we kind, of, we kind of create our own boxes. We kind of compartmentalize our life and say, well, I only work and yeah. do and serve here or there or that. And I, I, think, I think we could look at it differently. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And that's why I'm glad that you're here to tell us more about it. And that's a... A perfect transition into telling us more about kind of how Mocha Club works um, and and your model and how it's different than maybe others we've heard of in the past. So we've touched on this already, but your Mocha Club's big thing is that you're partners with the African people, right? You're not just missionaries going there for yeah. short-term help or whatever it is. So can you talk more about that? Sure. Um, you know, our model is is not based on me because I wasn't here in the inception of it, but it is based on a belief that I hold really true, which is when I leave a place, so does my money and my brain, right? Um, mm-hmm. When you move from Illinois to, I don't know, where do you want to move? Kenzie, you want to move to Denver? Well, actually, we are moving next month yeah. to South Carolina. Okay. So when you move... <laughs> So will your money, right? You'll no longer be buying groceries there. You'll be buying groceries in South Carolina. And so will your brain. So what gets left by your footprint when you leave is, is all the things you've chosen and been able to impart to the people and the places around you. It's education, really. It's just a different way of looking at that word. So that's really the basis of what we're doing. I'm saying, Hey, I can either build an entire organization around me and I can travel to Africa and I can um, be so important in the scheme and program. Um, Or I could take a water well and a concept for that and I could build it over and over and over and over again. But when I leave someplace, my brain and my money goes with it. So what then can I leave behind is really what our question is always. How do we build what gets left behind? How do you impart and build into um, people and places that are doing their own thing, right? We've already talked about they're smart, they're resilient, they're creative and innovative. How do I build into what they're already doing and leave behind something that they that will have a lasting value because they, they got it, they, they keep it, they use it. 
So it's definitely based on this idea that um, education is at, the, is at the core of what we can leave behind for somebody. Hmm. So we built a network based on that. We've got country directors. We've got country staff in every one of our countries. We have worked diligently and hard to basically build a teaching network, a, a network of teachers, facilitators, trained men and women who can teach any of the courses that we offer. And then um, from there, it's really kind of based on um, kind of based on that old time like discipleship um, model of like, hey, if this teacher teaches 10 people, then those 10 people can now teach 10 more people each, which now we've got 100, right? So it's based on that like multiplication model of if I have, like right now I have 500, over 500 um, trained facilitators all over the continent. And their job is to be teaching all the time. So it takes them two to three years to go through all of our curriculum um, and train up the men and women that are in these local communities. Um, and so in the midst of that time, they're doing life with them. They're mentoring them. They are offering them like a, a life coach and a, and a counselor and a best friend and, and really walking with them as they, as they learn trauma healing. And how do you teach this to kids? And what's the right language? And whoa, this kid's problems are huge. Like now what do I do? They're walking with these leaders, these student leaders through um, community development. Like what are we actually trying to build here? And do we think mm-hmm. that's the right thing to build here? And if we want to build it, then how are we going to build it? And what do we have access to? And what do we need? And how are we going to do it? And how do we make sure that it really worked? And, you know, we teach, um, we teach pastors how to lead churches. Men, I mean, gosh, I was blown away at one of my tri- first trips in Africa to realize that I was, I was in a Sunday like sermon. I was in a church service Sunday morning and this pastor that was preaching had never been to Bible school. Like he just couldn't afford it. Um, so he's preaching off what he knows, right. But he doesn't know very much. And so, well, gosh, that sounds like, like a recipe for disaster to have somebody who doesn't know what they're talking about, but has a heart and a passion. Like, yeah. gosh, I can, we can teach you old and new Testament. There's plenty of courses that um, yeah. can teach old and new Testament seminary type stuff or teach you about financial accountability and transparency so that you know how to keep books and, and have a board and, you know, like all kinds yeah. of things that add value in all of these communities that we're working in. And then, and then again, like if, if for some reason we're not there, they still have been given a whole skill set and to use for themselves, to use as they see fit. So these local teachers and um, trained facilitators are working with students. And like I said, they kind of walk with these students for anywhere from two to three years and teach them on all these different kinds of courses and subjects. Um, and then the other really cool part about it is that ultimately these students are tied back together in their own little network. So unlike the way we do kind of higher education here where I leave my home and I go off to a different state and I get an education and then from there I go on and do something else. When we teach, we're teaching in, in their communities. We're teaching men and women who are already working, who are already pursuing what they believe they're called to do in their little community or in their suburb of a big city. Um, and we're networking them together with other men and women right there in their community. And we, the teacher, comes to them um, and teaches them. They'll find a church building or a school building that isn't being used on Saturday, and they'll get permission to use um, a resource like a building. I mean, gosh, I've seen 
I've seen classes taught under a tree in Malawi and I've seen classes. No, I haven't seen it because I wasn't allowed to be there, but I've heard about the classes <laughs> in South Sudan in the middle of like bombs are being dropped by government planes and like everybody has a foxhole they can run to if they need to. Mm. Um, but this is where we're going to like meet and gather and learn whatever it is that we're studying. And so mm-hmm. um, it's amazing to see men and women recognize the power of education um, and they are hungry for it. And so, gosh, if we have access to materials, like sure, we can get it to you. And we have local men and women who can teach it to you um, in an environment that is conducive to you, not like requiring you to go to a major city 300 hours away. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's cool too. Like you were saying earlier that you guys, it's not just you deciding what they need to be better. It's you're working with them and asking them what their needs are. Right. And helping them to, to get those. Yeah. On a country level, what that means is that, um, our country staff, like our country staff in Ethiopia determine, Hey, um, our country staff and teachers go, Hey, these classes are the most important. And so we're going to teach, um, 1500 students, this material. And we want to take, um, this material and teach it to 500. And we want to take this course and, and there's 750 lined up for it. Like, they determine the courses that are best suited. Um, the students, they, they act like, like the teacher. They are the teacher. You know, they know better than I do if a student is equipped. You know, I, th- I think one of the things that's most interesting is that we have a lot of men and women who are pastors um, who will take a lot of our seminary courses. And, um, and then they'll want to take our, um, our counseling courses, our trauma healing courses, mm-hmm. especially with children. But let me just say, it is a particular type of person who has the capacity and the skill set to work with children who have been traumatized. Mm -hmm. I, sitting in a room in Nashville, Tennessee, couldn't look at a list of um, Ethiopian or Congolese men and women and go, that's the right person for this class. Um, But those teachers do. Those teachers know who's qualified and capable. So they're also helping us maximize our resources we're putting men and women through courses that are best suited for what they're trying to accomplish, um, not what we're trying to accomplish. So um, it's super great. It's really fun to do in this context of, of partnership. Um, we talk often, m- me and our staff in Africa, um, we talk about the pronouns that we use. So it is very true that one of the sticky sticking kind of selling points for us is if the pronouns that we're using are still us and them, um, mm-hmm. then we're probably not at a place where this partnership is is truly experienced and felt by both sides yet. It's when we start talking about we. We want to do this. We want to build this. Um, that kind of provides us kind of that gauge for like, hey, even on a community level, there's a sense that I, I am bringing value and having an asset at this at this table and in this project, but so also are you. Mm-hmm. And, and we're all willing to leverage what we can for this job or this project or this student yeah. course or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's really neat. And so I know it, just in doing some research on Mocha Club, it mentioned asset-based development on your website. Mm-hmm. So is most of the money that you raise, is it going towards classes and education predominantly? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Cool. Um, and, you know, asset-based development is this really cool word that everybody 
you know, we like to take kind of universal ideals and make them um, like specific to um, to a particular field. Like asset-based development is a fancy way of talking about like what you have and what your strengths are. And so in the, you know, they, they use a different term in the counseling world. They use a different term in, in the um, financial world. You know, they talk about your resources. But the reality is what we're talking about when we talk about asset-based development is starting from a place of what we have, not what we lack. So when we are talking and working in communities, that's how we approach the conversation. We're not talking about you don't have access to a well or you don't have latrines or you don't have food. Those things will be a part of the conversation, obviously. We need to know how to build an appropriate solution for what the actual need is in the community. Yeah. Um, yeah. But we're starting from a place of like, what do we have? I mean, if we have access to farmland that has sand on it, and um, in fact, there was a really cool example of this that happened, I guess, a couple of years ago. I'm in my office on a Tuesday. I get an email from Uganda, um, from our country staff in Uganda saying, hey, you should check out this project proposal. Um, we get project proposals all the time as students go through community, our community development course, um, mm-hmm. part of their Part of their process is coming up with a project that their community wants to do. So I get this project proposal. They're usually like 35 to 40 pages. Um, so they're pretty in-depth and they have like mm. an analysis of how this problem came to be and what the problem is. And they have a baseline survey of like, hey, we asked around in the community and we checked with the local government or the hospitals and here are the rates of whatever. And here's how we want to attack this problem. And anyway. So I'm reading through what is a beautiful project proposal talking about how, hey, um, our need is our children don't know English. We're in northern Uganda where the education system is all done in English and you have to take all your tests in English. But we're in a part of northern Uganda that was traumatized by Kony and the, um, and the LRA army. And so the these kids who were um, night commuters uh, during the LRA army days didn't really get a full education. So they didn't ever learn English. Well, now they've grown up and they've had their own kids. And it's these kids of the night commuters who, whose parents don't know English who are now getting sent to school, to the government school down the street. And because they haven't ever learned English, they're getting into first grade and they can't pass the tests mm-hmm. because they don't know English. And so this community had gotten together and, and the, the complaint and the, the moaning and groaning really of this, of this community was, we want our children to have education. And what's standing as a roadblock is they don't know English. And so they had put together a plan for building a little kindergarten school that would be um, kind of on this little lot next to the church in this little rural community um, filled with a bunch of huts and really beautiful, uh, like beautiful landscape. And um, they wanted to build this little three-room kindergarten. And they had found two teachers that knew English in the community who would volunteer to teach English to three, four, and five-year-olds before they went to the elementary school across the street. And so I'm reading going, oh, this is a really great concept and a really great idea. And I had, I had the rates of the kids as they were graduating from first and second grade and how, how low their grades were. I had um, how many new kids were coming up behind them and so how they really wanted to tackle this problem. Mm-hmm. And then I get to page like 30 where usually there's like a budget and a timeline for how they want to do this. And instead there are lots of pictures, mm-hmm. pictures of 
a completed school building and children in classes. And so as I kept reading, I realized they had done their asset map. They'd gone around their community looking for what resources do we have that match and meet this this problem that our community faces. How can we solve our own problem? And what they had found was one guy in the community had perfect sand for mixing. And one guy in the community had the concrete. If you broke apart the rock and were willing to work hard enough, his rock was like concrete. And so you, they could mix it and they could build their bricks and they could build their school. And they had the two teachers that knew English and were willing to volunteer their time. And all the other men in the community were willing to volunteer their labor. And the women were willing to cook all the food for this whole project and gather the water for making the bricks. And sure enough, all we had done was teach a course on community development And what they had done was recognize that they had the assets and the resources they need and they built the whole thing. And they were just sending us a report to say, hey, we did this. Mm -hmm. And here's what else is really cool. They tell me, um, you know, so they get all the, they get this whole building built and the only thing they don't have is enough money to go buy the metal for the roof. Mm -hmm. But just about that same time, a Korean church missionary was coming through Northern Uganda doing a project with the school So he was across the street looking at this elementary school and saw this community hard at work building this building next to their church. So he went over and he asked about it and they explained what they were doing. And he said, oh, wait, my church, I think, would give enough money to build to build the roof. And sure enough, they sent whenever this missionary got home to South Korea, sent the, you know, seven, eight hundred bucks over to this little church community to buy the, the roof to buy the metal for the roof. And I just look at that and I go, that's our role. That's our place. Mm-hmm. It doesn't need to have our name on it. It doesn't need to say Mocha Club screamed from the sky. Mm-hmm. I want to be in the niche that we're invited into. And our asset is training men and women for the project and the dreams that they see and helping them figure out how to actualize it. Um, but the beauty of doing that in community is that now there's this global body of men and women who want to participate in that work too. And so South Korea is going to finish off the church or finish off the school mm. building or, yeah. you know, it's just really cool. It's like, oh yeah, yeah, this is our part in the, in the bigger picture. That's awesome. That's such a cool story. And kind of along those lines, I know one of your other slogans is everyday generosity, right? Mm-hmm. And I, we talked a little bit about, you know, the name, beh- the meaning behind the Mocha Club name, but is there anything more to that everyday generosity piece that fits in here? Yeah, I mean, I think probably two things. I mean, everyday generosity on one level is is what we talked about. It's um, you can make sacrifices that might feel really minimal that have really massive impact. So that idea of um, it's something that can be done in your daily routine of that everyday generosity. Um, But I also love that phrase because it's always the thing every day that kind of stops me up and makes it challenges me. Like in what other ways every day can I be generous? Is that with my time on the phone with a friend? Is that, um, is that stopping long enough in my kitchen to really hear the words that are coming out of my husband's mouth or my son's mouth and honoring that? Mm-hmm. Is it, um, is it a place where I'm driving down the street and, and there's a homeless man and he's asking for something and, and, and I have food in my front seat. So why not say yes? Like everyday generosity is this great way of appreciating that um, really small uh, decisions 
to follow your heart and be generous and kind have lasting value, regardless of whether you're doing them in the States or you're doing them in Africa. That's really, really neat. And with that, I'm sure by now you've recruited a bunch of people to want to be a part of this because it's so cool. And so what, what does it really look like for us to be a part of the solution? Like, is it simply donating or is there more to it? What would you say if somebody's wondering that? Yeah, gosh, that's a great question. Um, I would say you get to be a part of this solution um, in lots of different ways. First of all, I think encouraging, encouraging um, the people around you and the places where you see people giving um, or sacrificing, like encouraging that. It, there, it goes a long way. Just today, I was sitting in my office and somebody brought the mail in and said, hey, there's a letter for you. Gosh, there's something amazing to get a handwritten letter from a friend who I haven't seen in two years because she's battling cancer, but it says like, Hey, this is what I was thinking about for you today. And um, I really hope that the work isn't overwhelming today. Like mm-hmm. there's encouraging, encouraging, not just me or Mocha club staff, but encouraging people around you who are doing, um, who are fighting and, and inviting generosity into their lives. How do we encourage that for one another? Um, I do think there's financial contributions. You know, like I said before, all of this training and educating of a leader um, costs us about $348 a whole year. That's it for a student. When you break that down, it's 29 bucks a month. That's your cup of coffee. So um, yeah, you can financially support the work that we're doing in Africa with with carrying, carrying that weight or part of that weight for a student. You can advocate for the stories and dreams. I think part of what the beauty of your podcast, McKenzie, is that you're inviting people to consider a different um, solution, consider a different narrative. Mm -hmm. So I think part of how people can engage with this work, um, find ways to be generous every day and um, find ways to change the conversation. I mean, we've had an hour long conversation about what is Africa and how does Africa look and, um, so help us fight the stereotypes that you hear, you know, help us um, challenge the conversation around really knowing what um, the dreams and the stories that are coming out of Africa are, because yes, some of them are really horrific. Um, mm-hmm. And, and so many of them are so compelling and encouraging and, um, and stimulating their beautiful stories. So I would say, yeah, do those things. I mean, I think for Mocha Club specifically, um, join us, join us in this work. Uh, you can do that financially. You could come volunteer or intern with us. That's like one of my favorite things is getting new people every, especially uh, college students that come, you know, every quarter or every semester. It's just a fun kind of shot in the arm. It's, it's beautiful work. Um, or take a trip with us. You know, just go see for yourself how beautiful it is and how normal it is and how in like, exotic it is all at the same time you know it'll feel whatever work you're called to whatever generosity you're called to give and sacrifice for when you get to see that in action whether in Africa or somewhere else like it kind of feels what you're doing and why yeah and something I wanted to ask you too was with the financial contributions mm-hmm. um something I've been learning is that like do, do you follow like Noonday or Seiko or any yeah. of those kind yeah. of companies okay mm-hmm. yeah So one of their things is obviously creating jobs for people because they think that's more 
sustainable than obviously just giving a one-time donation. And mm-hmm. and with yours, can you talk about how in your place with Mocha Club, Mocha Club specifically, it's different? It's, yes, it's donating, but it's not, it, it's still sustainable. Can you talk about that? Yeah. I mean, you are making a donation and not necessarily receiving anything from it. Um, so it's not the purchase of a good but um, it is still providing all the education. So um, for an organization like Noonday, um, which I love, I love them. They're yeah. awesome. In fact, they um, buy product from some of our nonprofit partners in Africa. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I love yeah. them. They're specifically focused on like, hey, when you buy this, that means a woman got a job from right. this activity. Um, and we kind of back up the train a little bit further and go, hey, that woman is competent and and healed enough in her own story because she's done work with our partners in the non like our nonprofit partner that's doing the trauma healing and caring about the community and training the leader who's running that business. Um, So it's just kind of up the pipeline. It's not uh, a battle or a difference. It's just a different way of attacking the same problem. One's giving the job to the, to the, woman. Um, and, and, and we're on the other end, our specific sweet spot and calling is really training the leader who's created a program for that woman to go through sure. so that she's in a stable enough place to get a job. Yeah, that makes total sense. And, and yeah, I just wanted to touch on that because in some instances I've said before, even on this podcast, like it's, you know, it can be more sustainable to support a company like Noonday versus just making a donation. Sure. Yeah. But in your case, it's, I mean, I think part of it too is it's not just a one-time donation. It's a consistent donation that, that Mocha Club can rely on. That's Mm -hmm. obviously more helpful. And you are using that to make sure that the education is there so that people can actually go do the jobs that companies like Noonday has. So that makes sense. And Thanks for explaining that. And I was also wondering too, how do you guys get connected with the local leaders? Like, how do you find these people, especially since we were talking about with the history of Africa, Uh there is a lot of corrupt leadership still in several of these countries. So how do you get connected with local leaders who are looking to make a difference? Girl, great question. Um, Again, I don't do that part. Um, Africa does that part. So a country staff team is is always recruiting students. So everything they're doing, every time they're teaching a class, every time they're um, at a church or in a a business setting, um, they're inviting men and women in that environment to come be a part of this education. And then, and it happens very similarly to the way it happens at a university. So you may get recruited at some college fair to, to come visit a campus, but then you still have to apply. And so I think we've added a lot of those elements to our program as well. You know, we always have teachers and staff in a country looking and searching for the men and women who are local leaders. Um, but then we ask them to apply and they have to have references and they have to um, be able to explain why they want into this program. And then they also pay part of it. I mean, we, we ask them to contribute. I mean, I think it's like $5 for every course they go through, but it gives them buy-in and ownership of their education. So it's not a handout. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, again, it's the beauty of having staff that are local to every country in which we work. They're yeah. the best suited to know, dude, this is, this guy is someone we need here, or this female is really pushing things through in her community. And we want to walk with her. 
versus um, these ones that may not. What would you say if there was somebody listening who heard us talking about African history and whatnot and thought, oh, that's that's too bad, that's really sad, but <laughs> didn't necessarily feel compelled to do anything about it, like they felt as if this problem's far away, maybe it doesn't really affect them personally. What would you want to say to someone who might be thinking that? Yeah, I mean, I think to people that maybe started this podcast and thought that, um, maybe more from a perspective of I just don't know or I'm too overwhelmed, don't know how I would care about Africa, I would say if you're developing a sense of caring for Africa, then join us. You know, like we've already talked about, contribute financially, take a trip, volunteer. But I think the other piece that's probably a deep-seated heartbeat of mine is just this idea that um, I think, again, talking about assets, one of the assets that, that almost everyone in particularly listening to this podcast would have um, is the potential to say that they have been loved. Somebody in their life has cared for them. And that in and of itself, I think, is often overlooked as an asset. And I'm just a big believer that it is one of our greatest assets that loved people, you like you and me, who have been loved well by parents or husbands or friends or community, um, loved people can then therefore love people. And, um, and so I think that goes back to the bigger call of everyday generosity. I would say if your heart is not tied to Africa and you don't feel stirred in that direction, great, fine, but pull up a seat at the table somewhere pull up a seat at the table of your local homeless shelter or care about Haiti or care about the environment. I mean, none of these issues or places or intervention strategies are better or worse than the others. Um, So invest yourself, take what you've been given, your love, your knowledge, your assets, and pour it in somewhere. Pick a seat at the table and and have, have a space for everyday generosity in your life love well because you've been loved yeah i love it that's perfect thank you for saying that you're welcome if there was one final thing you want people to know want listeners to walk away with today what would you say oh my gosh what a question (laughs) um i think i would say i would really love people i would challenge people um it happened to me this morning what is what is the goodness of my life Um, where has God been good and how can I leverage that for somebody else? Okay. Do you, do you have time for some fun questions? Yeah. Okay. Go for it. Okay. Fun questions. Uh, how about, do you have anybody that you look up to as a role model? Oh man. So many. I'm very fortunate to have a mother and a a mother-in-law who love me and love their children really well and who have, who are, fight hard for their marriage. Not that either one of their marriages is overly complicated or trying, but like they're committed. These women are passionate, committed to their marriage, mm-hmm. to their families, um, to, to the Lord. Um, and that just is a gift. I recognize that a lot of people don't have that. Yeah. yeah. Mm, that's so sweet. Okay. Now they have to listen to this. um how about the most impactful book you've read oh my gosh one i can only pick one book you can you can pick more than one if you need to golly could you pick three is that i could pick okay so one of my all-time favorite books i don't i don't know that i would say it's the most impactful but it probably speaks to this perspective of like 
looking at the world for its good and its unity and its positive. Um, Do you know who Bob Hope is? Oh, yeah, like USO? Yeah, like the comedian. Yeah. (laughs) No longer alive, but um, um, Bob Hope wrote a book called Don't Shoot, It's Only Me. It's his history of the United States from 1920 to 1990. He got to see the world, obviously, on the USO and um, going into war zones. He got to golf with presidents. It is such a funny book, but a place of being able to recognize what is beautiful um, in the world that we find ourselves. I mean, in the middle of a war, he's making people laugh, and he is finding laughter. And I just love reading some things like that that feel like um, they're not a history book, but they're also not like truth fiction, like Right. Nothing here is real. Um, yeah. So I love Don't Shoot, It's Only Me by Bob Hope. Mm, okay, that's interesting. Um, a challenging, thought-provoking book um, that has become one of my favorites is I am reading currently reading a book called The Anatomy of Peace. It's by the Arbinger Center, and they wrote this book in a very narrative format, so it doesn't feel like you're reading a textbook or, or a, like, I'm supposed to be learning something kind of book. But it's all about how you approach people from a heart posture of um, rest and peace, not conflict and tension. Um, seeing people as people, not objects. Recognizing where we have that sense, that, that, that human dignity sense of, like, oh, I should respond this way, but, like, you know, that woman dropped something in the street. I should go get, pick it up for her, but we don't. Just beginning to recognize those things internally in ourselves and crafting and cultivating a posture um, of a heart that's at rest and at peace and being able to tackle the world, seeing people as people. It's really beautiful. That's cool. Yeah. Okay, so just two? I mean, the list would go on forever. <laughs> no, those are great. I haven't heard of either of those, but I'm going to have to look them up. What about, do you have anything that you've listened to recently that you think everybody should hear? Like a documentary or podcast episode or anything like that? Oh, man. We love documentaries in our house. I'm trying to think of yeah nothing that's super new, but the two that I've loved, the two documentaries that I love the most, um, one is Babies. Did you see Babies? No. Oh, my gosh. So it's a whole documentary, and it follows the life of um, four newborn babies, one in Africa, one in Asia, one in the U.S. Let's see, Tokyo, Japan, Tokyo, uh, Tokyo, U.S., um, maybe Malaysia and Namibia. And um, there's no talk. There's no talking, really. There's no, like, voice overview. There's no – there's nobody asking questions of these people, and you literally – follow the life of babies from newborn till they walk. And it's so amazing to see in different cultures the similarities of those babies and then the difference and distinction of those babies because of their really? culture. It's just beautiful, and it's super thought-provoking. Ooh, that sounds interesting. Where did you it's find it? It's super cool. Um, gosh, I think I first saw it. I think I first saw it maybe in a theater or oh, okay. um, it's on Netflix. I think, I think okay. it's on Netflix. I was going to say, if it's not on Netflix. Definitely on iTunes. Okay. Definitely on iTunes. I think the last place I watched it was Netflix. Okay. Um, it's great. It's one that I've seen like three or four times. Okay. Other one that I really love just because it's, again, I like things when I walk in feeling one way about an issue or a person and then this documentary or this book kind of paints a completely radically different look um, and challenges my perspective. 
So another one that I really liked was um, a documentary on Donald Rumsfeld called, what was that called? The Unknown Known. Okay, interesting. He did a, a documentary called The Unknown Known about the thing he fears most in life, fears as Secretary of Defense, was the unknown known. Huh. Like knowing something might happen, but not knowing when it could happen. Yeah. Wow. Okay. You've given us lots of good recommendations here. Very thought provoking. Do you have a brand or product that you're really liking lately? Oh. This is my favorite question because I get the best recommendations. Dude, what do you get? You got to tell me all your answers. Well, I did a recording earlier today, this morning, and she was telling me about this like non-toxic makeup. And I just decided I want to do, like, toxin-free everything. Yeah. And she was telling me about some of her products for that. Um, I'll say I'm a really big, like, uh, essential oil person. Oh, okay. So we do a lot, essential oils for everything, from, okay. like, diffusing and smelling up our house to, like, uh, all my cleaning products are natural oils, essential oils, and, um, yeah, like, how we keep each other well. Yeah. Now that I have, now that I have a cold, um, essential oil. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we do a lot of art naturals and young living essential oils in my home. Pretty in love with it. Well, I, I want to be one of those people, but I feel like <laughs> it takes so much initial research and figuring out what, like how to use them all. Girl, let me tell you something. <laughs> you have landed me on my, like, here's the one thing I would say to people. We just need to all be a little bit more okay with flopping around because in the reality of life, we are all flopping, yeah. right? Like I am doing my very best and some days I rock and some days I fail miserably at being a parent, but I've never been a parent before. I've never been the parent of this three-year-old little boy before. So every day we're flopping. Mm -hmm. We're trying it. It's working. It's not working. So I would tell you, just jump in. Just flop around a bit in essential oils. Find some things you love and then decide if there's one brand that you like slash can afford because they range, sister, from like inexpensive to, you know, I can't buy that with my year's salary. So, <laughs> I mean, you just kind of got to find what works. But yeah, jump in. It's a super great world. Mm, I like it. That's such good advice for so many things in life. That <laughs> Really wow. translates to so many things. My poor three-year-old understands the concept because we talk about it all the time. Like, hey, buddy, flopping we're, we're flopping here. Like, let's just try it. We're just going to try it. Oh, that's great. Have you found any, like, new recent use for one of your essential oils that you're really liking? Um, yeah, we've made – so allergy season has hit in, in yeah. the south. And yeah. so, yeah, we've found, like, a really awesome recipe for um, – allergies that works really well for us Ooh, so okay i have to get that from you and share it oh with yeah girl. i'll email it to you okay that'd be great is there anything right now that's exciting that's going on for mocha club any projects that you guys are working on yeah um well there's always projects that are going on but one of the things that's really cool is we have a project um that we've been working on and with in congo or in um, kenya for a really long time um, it's a school, it's a high school in the middle of a slum. Um, and for years, there was a little 10-year-old girl who is now not little. She's, I think she's 25. But for <laughs> 10 years, when she first heard about this school, said, wait, I want to do something to help that school, 10-year-old. Mm. And she decided to start raising money at her school. 
And then that turned into running a race. So every year here in Nashville, we had a race for 10 years called Ellie's Run for Africa. And she raised, oh gosh, over half a million dollars for this school um, in Kenya, right? Like everybody, if you're 10 years old or better, can be invested. Just pick a place and do what you can with what you got. So um, she did that. Ellie did that for a long time. She's gone off to college and graduated from college and living a life. Um, And the... um, the, the women, the woman, the leader that's running New Dawn School in Kenya um, said, hey, Emily, we're at a place finally where we've, we've been working to build up her school board and build up local capacity. She said, I think we want to do a race here, like an Ellie's Run race, um, but we want to do it in Kenya and we want to get all of the really rich community that lives around the school to start considering how they might give. Like we want to take Ellie's Run from Nashville to Kenya. Um, could we do that? And of course, Ellie was like, yes, you can do that. (laughs) So um, we are getting ready to run our second race in Kenya, in Nairobi, Kenya in August, where local Kenyans are raising money for the work they are doing in the slum. Mm -hmm. And so there's a bunch of us going to Kenya to run a 5k um, in August. So that's been something we're working on and building and um, dreaming about and planning for and um, super exciting, super fun to see people, um, see 10 year olds make a difference yeah. and then also see how that like f- literally 15 years later is still having value, um, in Kenya. That's so cool. That's really So neat. we're going to go and hopefully, uh, half-heartedly run. Some of us <laughs> run better than others. Um, but definitely do a lot of cheering and supporting yeah. of um, what they're doing. That's awesome. Yeah. Did you have a good turnout last year? Yes, they did. They had a, they ran it in the rain. Um, they had pushed the date back to November, so it was um, a colder, uh, rainier season getting ready for their summer. Um, but this year it'll be it'll be cooler and dry. Nice. So it'll be great. Oh, that's exciting! Yeah. All right, if people want to connect with you or find out more about Mocha Club or see the race happening next month yeah. or in August, how can they how can they do that? So um, you can email me if that's what you want to do. And my email is E Blackledge. My last name is Blackledge. Black like a color and then L-E-D-G-E. So E Blackledge at themocaclub.org. Um, if you want to catch up with what we're doing and kind of stay updated, um, our uh, website is themocaclub.org. And then, um, you know, we have socials. We have Instagram and Facebook and all those fun things, Twitter. Yes. So, Yeah. Awesome. Hang out. I'll put links to all of it, and people will want to follow you for sure. I can't wait to see how the race goes, especially. That'll be awesome. It'll be so fun. Yeah. Uh, Emily, thank you so much for taking the time to do this, to educate us, and tell us more about a place that you're super passionate about, and just for what you guys do. I think it's amazing, and I want to support it, and I'm sure everybody else that listened does too, so Thanks for what you do and for sharing it with us. Hey, thanks so much, Mackenzie. It was so great to talk to you. Uh, Absolutely. I want to do it again sometime. For sure. Have a great afternoon. Thanks. You too. Okay. Bye. Another amazing conversation with another amazing Emily. What did you think? I'm sure you are completely sold on the Mocha Club and what they're doing in Africa. Isn't it amazing? Some of my biggest takeaways were what Emily shared about the similarity between us and the African people. 
We are all human beings with the same struggles and the same worries and the same thoughts. Even though our material lives might look different, I am reminded of one of my favorite quotes by Maya Angelou that we are more alike than we are unalike. I think it's good to bring that into perspective so that we can create less distance between us and those in other countries that might need our help. I was also completely educated in the history lesson that Emily gave us. I'm sure some of you could relate and that you were unaware of the role that even your own home country played in the state of several of these African countries today. I'm sure a lot of you could also relate to the fact that you did not know that there were still active wars going on in many of these countries. Because these wars have been waging for so long, they have gotten less and less attention. So many of us are even blind to the fact that they're happening and that there are real active threats for innocent people in these countries day after day after day. I'm so convicted when I hear about things like that and things like the refugee camps that are in these countries. I said it while Emily and I were talking and I will say it again. Some of the poorest countries in the world are the countries with some of the highest refugee populations and they are all just trying to make it. I don't know about you, but that makes me a little uncomfortable as I sit in the comfort of my own home. But like I said, this conversation was not meant to be a depressing one. In fact, it is meant to be filled with hope in the ways that we are seeing some of these issues across these diverse countries come to an end, much in part due to the amazing work that the Mocha Club is doing. I love that they have a sustainable model of helping that can foster our financial donations to help empower through education and empower in a locally sourced way. I think that's probably my favorite part about their model. Emily recognizes that she is not going to be able to come up with the best solution when she is not familiar with the area herself, but instead they're going to find qualified local leaders who want nothing but the best for their country and empower them so that they can go out and multiply and empower others. It's such a cool model and it makes so much sense once you think about it. After speaking with Emily, I felt like Africa was totally put on my heart. I felt that way for a long time, feeling ignorant to what's going on in countries outside of my own and wanting to be a part of what's helping without being someone that lives overseas as a missionary. And so I wanted to tell you all that I did put my money where my mouth is. I decided to start financially supporting the Mocha Club at the $29 a month rate. And I don't say that to brag or to make anybody feel bad, but just because I want you to know that I believe in this, not just with my words, but with my wallet and where my investments are going. Emily had a great point that it is a low cost, less than one cup of coffee a day from McDonald's and their coffee is not expensive by any means. I mean, $29 a month is less than I would spend on a manicure if I went and got one. So after thinking about it, I decided it was definitely a worthy financial investment and I am proud to be supporting them and I hope you will consider doing that too. I also want to challenge you not to just give out of the excess of what you have, but think about what you could sacrifice. I love what Emily shared about thinking about the fact that most of us are where we're at today because we have been cared for by others, so how can we now, in turn, care for other people? And like Emily said, that doesn't have to be giving to the MOGA club for all of you, but giving to some kind of cause whether it's financially or with your time investment, whatever you are passionate about in this world, pull up a chair at that table. I love that analogy. Don't wait for a seat to be handed to you, but pull up your own chair and start making a difference. 
You have the power to do it and you are so needed. If you want to look more into anything that Emily and I referenced in this conversation, you can view the show notes on whatever app you're listening to or on my website, heartfelthippie.com. While you're checking that out, I would also really appreciate if you would consider leaving me a review or a rating, letting me know what you think of the show and helping others to find it. It's greatly appreciated and it won't take very long. In the meantime, stay tuned for my next episode releasing in two weeks with Todd Dalberg from Endangered Species Chocolate. We are talking all things endangered species and fair trade chocolate. Those aren't two topics that you normally hear together, but I love endangered species chocolate's model and you're going to love it too. And you're going to be craving some of their products afterwards. Trust me. So stay tuned for that. And in the meantime, Think about the Mocha Club. Think about what Emily shared today. Think about everyday generosity. Keep seeking to get enlightened and thinking about how you can help to change the world. Peace out.